Amen. You may be seated. Hey, while you're being seated, David, would you put that second to last slide up on that song we just sang? I don't know if many of you realize this. Um, This is a song that has been cherished and sung by Christians for uh, several centuries now. If you grew up in church, especially a long time ago, you probably sang this song. And uh, some of these older hymns, classic hymns, are kind of coming back into vogue. And um, This song I love, O Come Thou Fount. And uh, I want us to focus on just this last verse that we sang, because I, I wonder if maybe some of you don't even realize what you just sang and, and how it relates to what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Um, it says this, O to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Do you know what a fetter is? Anybody know? Uh, I don't know if you are familiar, um, but in old movies, especially in old TV shows, prisoners uh, used to be chained at the feet. They would have um, the, the clamps or whatever you call them around each of their feet with a, a like chain link between them. So that they could walk barely, but they could never run. They couldn't get away. Um, those feet shackles are called fetters. And, and, and that's what the author of the song is talking about right here. And he's, he's crying out to God. He's making a confession that all of us understand that we've all felt before. Uh, and, and then in the next part of the verse, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's something that uh, if you've been following Christ for very long... You can understand that sentence. Uh, An inward desire that pops up sometimes that tends to lead us to wander from the truth of Scripture to the goodness and graciousness of God. And and this is really what what the author is talking about. uh, About this struggle. And what he says is, God, in Your grace, would You please bind me shackle me to you like a fetter put chains on me that would prevent me from wandering which i am so often predisposed to do and and he's crying out and and just out of god's grace begging for chains and i think it's interesting given what we've been talking about for the last six weeks if you're new with us my name's adam i'm the lead pastor here at element church and we've been walking through the book of philippians which is written by a guy named paul who's in prison as he writes this letter. He's he's awaiting a trial before Caesar in Rome, not knowing whether this trial will end in his acquittal or in his execution. And he's writing a letter to a group of people in a city called Philippi. That's why we call the the book Philippians. He's writing this letter to a group of Christians in a church in this city. Um, a group of Christians that he dearly loves. They, they really have a strong affection for one another, Paul and these Christians. Uh, this is actually a church Paul started himself, and so he just has a deep care for it. It's almost like his own child. Um, you know, he birthed this church. and um, Paul is writing, and despite his chains, is able to rejoice in the goodness of God. And As we were just singing this song a few minutes ago, uh, it just caught me as we were singing that I bet many of us didn't realize what fetters were. Sometimes we sing old songs, we use old words that we're not familiar with. But uh, I thought it was beautiful the way this song uh, so intimately works into what we've been talking about for several weeks now. 
so let me do this. I need to, uh, to get the stage set for this morning. So if you will, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Yes, I realize uh, this is week, uh, I don't know, 5 or 6. I believe it's week 5. We're still in the first chapter, but um, thank goodness. <clears throat> Excuse me, we're going to finish the first chapter uh, today. So if you will, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, open up your tablet or your uh, phone and open up the Bible app. Or if you'd like, there are Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. And if you use one of those Bibles, every time we have a uh, passage of Scripture up on the screen, there'll also be a page number so that you can turn to it if you'd like. If you don't own a Bible or you don't like the one you do own, feel free to take that home. That's our gift to you. So last week, um, we were in Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Uh, it's no secret, it's even listed for you in our schedule that we'll be in verses 27 through 30 today. But what I need to do is I need to read just a few verses from last week that are going to help springboard us into what we're talking about this week. And if you were here last week, you'll remember and know why. So let me start the second half of verse 18. And Paul says this, yes, and I will rejoice. He's talking about being in chains. He's talking about being in fetters. He's talking about the trials that he's endured and his opponents who have tried to make things worse for him. And he has chosen that regardless of what he's going through, he's going to look to the positive. He's going to proclaim, he's going to, to rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed. And, and he's choosing to rejoice uh, despite his circumstances, he says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then verse 21, and this is kind of our key verse for last week and this week. Paul says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, we spent our time last week talking about what did Paul mean when he says to die is gain. That for those of us who have placed our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, we are promised deliverance. Not necessarily, not necessarily excuse me, deliverance from all the difficulties of this life. I mean, Paul is writing these words while he's in prison. While he's enduring difficult circumstances. The Bible doesn't promise that with Christ we'll never encounter difficult circumstances. The Bible does promise us that with Christ we will be victorious over every difficulty in this life. And ultimately, death will not be the final stamp on our life. That death is actually, for those who trust Christ, a gateway into something much, much better. Paul referred to first fruits last week and we said it like this in this life for those of us who have trusted christ who follow him passionately we get just an appetizer of god's goodness we get just a small taste or first fruits as paul would call it of of how good god is his love and his grace and his mercy and his purpose and his power we get just an appetizer but death is the gateway for us to enter into the buffet line when we get the full course. And so for those of us who trust and believe in Christ and the deliverance that He promises us, death is gain. 
Because we don't just get a small portion of God, we get the whole thing more than we can ever wrap our minds around or imagine. And so this week we want to talk about what did Paul mean when he says to live is Christ. And for that answer, let's jump to verse 27, our passage for today. Let me read Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. He says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Can I pray for us? Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to just stand in your presence, to read your word, to understand you better. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to our lives this morning, that you would help us to understand the words of Paul, and that we can walk away today with a fuller appreciation and understanding of what it means to live is Christ. We thank you so much that For those of us who trust and follow you, death is gain. But today we want to press into what does it mean to live is you, to live is Christ. And I pray that you would show us that this morning. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let's go back to verse 27 and start working our way through these verses. And Paul says this, we just read it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is an important sentence. Um, Some people would say one of the most important in this whole book, and I don't want to pass over it lightly, but the reality is we spent two weeks already talking about living a life worthy of the gospel. If you go back and remember, if you were with us in week two, we started asking a question about what kind of fruit do you have in your life? Because the gospel changes. And if your life has been changed and impacted by the Gospel, then every part of your life will begin to bear fruit that shows that. You know, an apple tree bears what kind of fruit? An apple. An orange tree bears what kind of fruit? An orange. And Paul says, a life that's been changed and impacted by the truth of Jesus, which is what we would call the Gospel message, if your life has been changed by that, then as though you were a tree, you should bear fruit that shows the rest of the world that you've been changed by the truth and the message of Christ. So week two, our big question was, what kind of fruit do you have in your life? Is there fruit in your life that shows that you've been changed and transformed, that you really understand and have embraced the gospel? And then week three, we asked another question. We said, okay, so maybe and probably most Everybody in this room could say, yes, I have good fruit. I'm a generally good person. Um, I'm pretty nice. I don't lie too much unless I'm, you know, trying not to get in trouble with my wife. And so, you know, you just, never mind. Uh, Right? So I I don't lie too much. Or when I do, they're little white lies. They're innocent. I, I don't do really bad stuff. I'm certainly not a jerk like 
The guy I work next to, I'm, I'm not nearly as selfish as my next door neighbor. I, I'm not nearly as crazy as my crazy aunt or uncle or, you know, every family's got one. Uh, and so we look around and we say, you know, I'm pretty good. So yeah, I've got good fruit. And then we ask the question week three, why is that good fruit there? Because see, you can have what appears to be good fruit for all the wrong reasons. And so we spent really two weeks talking about living a life that's worthy of the gospel. Living a life that shows that you've been transformed by the gospel. And living a life that's marked by um, not doing good things for the wrong reasons, but doing good things because Jesus has changed who you are. And if you think about it, with this statement here by Paul, we have to ask the question, if it's true that Christ is life, and that death is victory for us, shouldn't our daily lives reflect that truth? That stings a little bit. I'm going to ask it again. If it's true that Christ is life, and death is victory for us, Shouldn't our daily lives reflect that truth? And that's what Paul's talking about. Do you live a life worthy of the gospel? Does your life represent that death is victory and Christ is life for you? Let's keep moving on. And Paul says this, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, so if you remember, Paul's in prison. He loves this church dearly. And he's been telling them, I hope I get to come see you again. I hope I get set free. I'm believing in faith that that's what's going to happen because I would love to come see you, spend time with you, um, to, to do more ministry with you and for you. And he says, so whether I come and see you or am absent, meaning maybe I get set free, I go somewhere else, or maybe, maybe Caesar, Nero, Emperor Nero, maybe he cuts off my head. But regardless, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You know, all through this series, as we've been walking through the book of Philippians, or so far just the first chapter, we've been building an understanding of what it means to be the church. What makes us special in this room? What makes us any different than any other social club, social gathering, or crowd? What makes us different? So we've been just kind of hitting the pause button every week, stopping and looking at what Paul has to say to this little church and and why they're so special and why God has um, put them together for specific reasons. And we've talked about different things. Like um, as the church, the reason we exist and part of what makes us different is that we partner together in the gospel. That we partner together both so that the gospel can further impact our lives, but also so that we can help share and spread the gospel message to other people. Another thing that sets us apart is that us in here, we, take, we partake of grace together. And that our faith isn't something that was ever designed to be lived alone, but that we need one another. And one of the beautiful things about God creating the church is that we have the opportunity to partake in God's grace together and to experience it in new and, and, and powerful ways. Another thing that makes us different is that we're a family. And just like an earthly family means we have dysfunction, means that we have arguments, 
It means that a couple of us are crazy. Right? A couple of us, right, really fit in. Some of us don't. But in the end, we got each other's back. Just like a real family that in the end, we're going to stand up for one another. We're going to take care of one another. Just like a family, sometimes we have to get in one another's face and say, you're wrong, or this is not right, or you need to change this, or I'm worried about you. And Family members do that. You don't allow somebody that you dearly love in your family to just carry on destructive behaviors. You step in and, and you care for them and you do whatever you have to do in absolute gentleness, but some, sometimes sternness to protect your family. Another thing that makes us unique that we talked about last week is that we pray for one another. And praying for one another constitutes us getting to know one another because you can't pray for somebody and for situations in their life that you don't know anything about. And so just walking in here on a Sunday morning and spending an hour and a half and then jetting out as soon as you can so you can beat everybody else to lunch, which probably isn't going to happen because I usually preach too long. That was supposed to be funny, but apparently it's true. It's not that funny. Um, Right, so we have to get to know one another, which means we have to spend time together. And you get to know the people that you sit around. It means you hang out and spend time with people outside of this hour and a half that we gather together corporately on a Sunday morning. And that's part of what it means to pray for one another is because you know them and you're involved in their lives and you care about what they care about. When somebody in our family mourns, we mourn with them. When somebody in this church family rejoices, we rejoice with them. And then here Paul gives us one more. Part of what makes us unique and special is that we are united in the gospel and united in the midst of difficulties and trials. That we don't let petty things come between us. That we don't let differences of opinion or preference get in between what matters most. That we keep our priorities. That what matters most is that in our family, we partake of grace together. That we worship Jesus for who He is. Not who we want Him to be, but who He is as He's revealed Himself in His Word. We partake of grace together. That we partner in the Gospel. That we, we are united for truth. Despite what opposition may be, out there, whether it's your next door neighbor or society at large, that we stand united on what matters most. That we have our priorities straight. And that we don't elevate any one individual over what's best and important and necessary for the whole group. That we're united together. Now let's keep moving on because, again, the Hitting the pause button, talking about what it means to be the church is a great thing to talk about, but it's really uh, not the main point of, of this passage or some of the others we've talked about. So let's keep moving on. And he says in verse 28, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now this is a strange sentence we're going to talk about for just a second. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, what did he mean there? Well, 
not to oversimplify, but, here, but here's what Paul's saying. When you stand firm in what you believe in, not with arrogance, not rudely, not with pride, but when you stand firm on truth, on God's truth, and you're not willing to waver to the opinions of other people or the opinions of our government or the opinions of society or the opinion of your boss at work, when you're willing as a church family to stand united together, to stand firm in the face of your opponents, what you do is you draw a very clear line in the sand so that there's no confusion about who you are or where you stand. That there's no denying that there's fruit in your life that says you've been changed by the gospel. You see, too often what we do is out of fear of persecution, out of fear of being made fun of or ostracized, or just out of pure cowardice, we often uh, fail to stand firm in what we believe and what we know to be truth. And so we, we take a soft stance and we start backing up and say, well, you know, we don't really believe that anymore. That's kind of old-fashioned. Or, you know, I don't really want to get into that. I don't want to talk about that. Or, you know, hey, whatever you want to believe is cool. You know, you just figure out what's right for you and I'll figure out what's right for me. And when we, when we take a soft stance, when we fail to stand firm for truth, what we do is we erase that line in the sand so that people don't really know who you are. Or where you stand. And from their perspective, why in the world would they ever embrace Christ? Why would they ever want to believe in Him? Because your life has made it obvious, it doesn't matter. Why would they need Jesus? You're not any different than they are. Why should they embrace the truth of the Bible when you don't even believe it? Or aren't willing to stand for it? And what Paul's talking about here is when you stand firm, you draw a line in the sand. And even though it's contrary to popular belief, when there's a clear line in the sand, it's easier to invite people to step over it. It's easier to invite people to embrace and understand and believe in and follow Jesus when there's a line that shows them the difference between absolute, ultimate, real, God-given truth and man-made conjecture. And it actually serves to advance the Gospel more when we're willing to have the courage to stand up for truth and what we believe in. And let's move on. Verse 29. Paul says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for his sake. And this is really where we land today as we start talking about what does it mean to live as Christ. I want us to look at a couple of other passages from Scripture that are going to help us understand both what Paul's saying here in verse 29 and also what he says when he says to live as Christ. And the first one I want you to turn to is Galatians 2.20. It's page 832 if you're using one of our Bibles. Galatians 2.20. It's also going to be on the screen. So I'm going to go ahead and begin reading it. And Paul says this, so same author, writing to um, another group of Christians, just a different group, in Galatians 2.20. And he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says, I no longer live. I've made a conscious decision to die. To be crucified with Christ so that it's no longer about me living, but Christ living through me. And you see, he's starting to paint a picture for us of what, of what this means to live as Christ, that, that we're going to die to our own desires. We're going to die to our own wants and our own tendencies and our own habits and our own hang-ups. We're going to die to ourselves not because we hate life, but because we love life. We're going to choose death so that we can experience real life. We're going to die so that room is made for Christ to live in us. I want you, if if you're going to keep up with me, I'm probably not going to stop and wait for everybody to turn there, but we're going to go to John chapter 15. It'll be up on the screen, page 772 if you're using one of our Bibles. John chapter 15, and and I'm going to start reading in verse 18. Again, it's going to be up here on the screen if you don't have time to, to flip there. And And this is Jesus talking to His disciples. To those men who have given up everything in their lives to follow Him. Who have denied their own professions and their families and their identities and their homelands so that they can follow Him. And He tells them this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And this helps to fill in some of the question marks that Paul left us with in Philippians. When he said, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Paul almost made it sound like we should go looking for trouble. That a part of following Jesus means we go find suffering, but Jesus says, you don't need to look for it. I promise you, it'll find you. Just like Paul said, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And Jesus says, if they persecuted me, don't you know that if I'm living in you, they'll persecute you? See, we don't go looking for trouble. We don't go looking for suffering as though it's a badge of honor. Which means we don't go to our workplaces and we don't beat people over the heads with the Bible. We're not jerks who always are trying to start start debates, stir up controversy. No, we live humble lives that show the fruit of the Gospel, but by very nature of allowing Christ to live in and through us, suffering will find us. Jesus says, if they hated me first, just be prepared. You don't need to look for it. It'll find you, but they're going to hate you too. If they hate what I stood for, don't you think they'll hate hate it when you stand for the same thing? If they hate the way that I loved and served people, don't you know that when I live in and through you and love and serve people through you, don't you know they'll hate it too? There's two more verses I want us to look at. So if you still have your Bibles open, you can turn to page 830 in one of our Bibles or 2 Corinthians 
chapter 12. Again, this is Paul, same author. Again, writing to a church, this time in the city of Corinth. Earlier, we read from Galatians. Uh, Galatia was not a city, it was a region, and so he was actually writing there to Christians in a whole region. But here, Corinth is a city. He's writing to another church. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to start reading in verse 8. And, and here's what Paul is talking about. Paul's talking about suffering. He's talking about what it's like to endure strange and difficult circumstances. And here's why I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because I don't know if you caught it when we were reading in Philippians, but Paul said something really strange. At least it seems really strange to me. He said this, for it has been granted to you. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. That word granted literally means to be shown favor or to be given generously. So Paul just said, God has shown you great favor by giving you such a generous gift of suffering. What? What what does that mean? Why would Paul say something like that? Why would you say that God has shown us favor and given us a generous gift of suffering? That doesn't make any sense. That flies in the face of everything that we're told to believe. I don't know if you watch Christian television, and I would highly encourage you not to. But if you do or are familiar with any of that, you know that that's exactly opposite of what they teach on TV. They tell you if you'll follow Jesus, everything in your life will be great. Only a real, true Christian We'll, we'll have all these blessings. Or, or really, you should probably say, if you are a real, true Christian, somebody who loves God and is following Him, then that will translate into you having lots of blessings and a healthy body and a good family and everything you need and pure happiness and no suffering and no trials and no difficulties. And Paul says, when you're suffering... Just know this, it's a generous gift from God and He's showing you great favor. Why in the world would He say that? We're going to see a little bit of that in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 8, Paul here is talking about suffering that he's going through. And he he says this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, talking about His suffering, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is why Paul says, God has shown us so much favor. What a generous gift of suffering God has given us. Because it's only when you're at the end of your rope, when you're at the end of yourself and you have nothing left, no more strength, 
No more fight. No more power. No more mental and emotional energy to fire you up. When you've got nothing and suffering has torn you down, that you understand what Paul says here, what Jesus says to Paul. That when Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. It's only when you get to the point in your life when you have nothing but God's grace that you realize that's all you need. It's only when suffering has taken everything, has taken everything else away from you that you can say, His grace is good enough. It is more than enough. It is all I need. And Paul says there is no greater gift that God could give to one of His followers, one of His children, than to allow them to understand that His grace is all that we need. So that in the midst of difficulties and sufferings like Paul, we can say, I will celebrate my weaknesses. I'll rejoice in weaknesses. We titled this series for Philippians, Finding Joy in All Things. Because Paul had every reason and excuse in the book to not rejoice, to not be full of joy. But despite everything that had happened to him, he says, I rejoice. Because I know that God's grace is all I need. And so he says here in 2 Corinthians, For the sake of Christ then, I, will con- I, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When my human body, when my life is torn down and I have nothing else to offer, and Christ lives in and through me, and that's when the power of Christ is shown. That's what it means to live as Christ. Is that His grace is more powerful than any hardship, suffering, persecution, insult, difficulty that you could face. Because it's in those moments that His grace shines so brightly and so powerfully. There's one more Scripture that I want us to look at. So if you're in 2 Corinthians right now, you just need to turn to the left a couple pages. So we're going to go to chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. Paul says this, but we have this treasure. He, Paul has just been talking in the rest earlier in chapter 4 about the gospel. And so that's what he's talking about. He's been talking about the gospel message. The truth of the birth, the life, the teachings, the ministry, the miracles, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's in a nutshell what we mean when we say the gospel But we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. Now, jars of clay is an ancient, uh, what we call idiom. Do you know what idiom is? We use them all the time. You just probably don't realize it. An idiom is a group of words that means something other than what it should mean. Uh, Let me explain. If I came up to you uh, after the service and we, we caught eyes and I said, Hey man, what's up? You know what I mean, right? 
you, you know that I'm talking about, hey, how are you doing? How are things going? Um, I, I actually may not even mean any of those things. I, it may just be a, a common courtesy, uh, you know, hello. But if I look at you and I say, what's up? What I don't mean is, hey, well, what kind of clouds are those? Right? When I say, what's up? I don't mean, hey, what kind of texture is that on the ceiling? What kind of projector is that up there? You know when I say what's up, what I really mean. Because it's an idiom. Because the literal words, literally what I said is what's above you. But you know that's not what I mean. And and this is what he says when he says jars of clay. In the ancient world, jars of clay was a symbol for human weakness. And so Paul and his readers no doubt understood what he meant there. So he says this, I have this treasure, the gospel, we, we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, meaning the, the gospel message is embedded. We, he's talking to other Christians, so for those who believe in Christ, the gospel message is embedded in our human, weak, frail, like we sang earlier, prone to wander bodies. He says this, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God has put the powerful message of the gospel in our weak human bodies so that it can be known and shown when other people see the fruit of a life lived worthy of the gospel that the surpassing power of that comes from God and not from our weak bodies. He says this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And this is exactly what Paul means when he said in Philippians, to live is Christ. That every day, as followers of Christ, we wake up and we always carry in our body the death of Jesus. Like he said earlier in Galatians, that we that we've been crucified with Christ. We identify with the death of Christ so that we can have the joy and the blessing of identifying with His life. For a follower of Christ, death is gain. Because we no longer just get an appetizer of God's goodness, we get the full course. But to live is Christ. To live is not to do what I want to do. To live is not live my own life. To live is not to be whoever I want to be. Embrace whatever truth I want to embrace. To live, to really live. True life is found when I choose death and allow Christ to live in me. And so Paul says... 
as a follower of Christ, I'm going to embrace death in one of two ways. I'm going to embrace the death of myself and of my broken mind and my troubled heart and my weak body. I'm going to embrace I'm going to embrace the death of myself so that Christ can live. And I'm also going to celebrate in physical death because then I get the full course. Then I don't have to wrestle with daily dying to myself and allowing Christ to live because on the other side of death, I'll experience it in its fullness. We celebrate physical death because it means so much more beauty and life on the other side. For those of us who call ourselves a Christian, for those of us who embrace the Gospel message, to live isn't about us. To live is to die to ourselves so that Christ can live in us. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we're we're humbled by Your truth. We want to embrace the reality of what it means to believe in and trust in and, and accept the Gospel. Jesus, I pray that, that we would have full confidence to claim victory over death over physical death, that for us, it means victory. It means something better on the other side. That, that physical death is the gate to experiencing everything You've promised us. But Father, while we don't seek persecution, and we certainly do not seek physical death, We pray that in these moments, You would help us to embrace a daily choosing to die. To die to our own wants, our own desires. To be crucified with You, Jesus. And that we would daily identify with Your death so that we can identify with Your life. That we would choose to crucify ourselves with You so that You can live in us so that it would be true of every one of us in the room that death is victory but to live is you to continue living is all about you i pray that you'd help that truth to sink in to our hearts this morning and as we get ready to sing more about the truth of what you've done for us and how grateful we are. I pray that we take a moment to stop and reflect on the words we sing. That they would be truth that represent a condition of our heart and not just words that we, without effort or thinking, just repeat. But that in these moments, we'd celebrate the victory You've given us and choose death choose to identify in your death. And in so doing, that we would experience life and life to its fullest.